Well, folks, welcome to one more edition of Politics and Right. I'm Igberto Willis, your host. You guys caught me. You caught me. You caught me. The title is wrong. The title is wrong because I just got off an interview that I couldn't get working in time and got caught in the frenzy and didn't change it. So as I am speaking with you right now, all the emails went out with the wrong title. But you know what? If you take a look at uh, your YouTube now, the YouTube title is fixed. And as I play the next video, uh, I will get that fixed as well. Anyway, how are all my peeps doing? Welcome aboard. Let's see. Bridge MCP. Welcome aboard, Eric Hayes. Let's see what we got here. Welcome. Let's. Eric Hayes says, uh, paravit, paravit, paravit. finally getting somewhere in Texas, not Washington Senate, unanimous surpassa. Anyway. Uh, what else we got here? Lee Grant is in the house. Carl Cox is in the house. Paul Fleming is in the house. But he, let's see, Alistair Waters in the house. Melanie Keelan in the house. Norman Reynolds is in the house. Uh, I guess I got Bridge MCP. And AVQ says, I don't have anything to do today. And then, of course, he's the first one to find out. Title is a day out of date. You already played Joy and Reed. I'm not playing Joy and Reed today. I just got off an interview with State Representative uh, Jolanda Jones. And it went way longer than I thought because we had to catch up on a whole lot of other stuff that's going on in the Texas legislature. So time just caught up with me. I am so sorry. I am so sorry. Anyway, um, let, let me go ahead and read your stuff. Then I'm going to go ahead and get that interview that we did at KPFT with an environmentalist. I want to play that one. And while I play that interview, I get a chance to clean up a whole lot of other things that I need to get done to make sure that everything continues to work as they should. Anyway, let's go ahead and I'm going to read these real quickly. Eric uh, says, good climate news, uh, lakes coming back, record snows and rain for the West. This isn't the first time in Tahoe this has happened early. In the, but again, it's doing nothing for Lake Mead and Lake Powell. Look it up. They are really behind on their rain. And even as we're getting this deluge, it's not going into the right river basin to fill back up Lake Mead and Lake Powell. Look it up. Finally, getting somewhere in Texas and not Washington and state passed a bill defining fentanyl poisoning as murder. Houston Senator John Huffman authored Senate bill. I, I love all this crap, right? They're going to define, oh, you know what? Fentanyl, if you distribute fentanyl, it's murder, it's murder. No, it's not murder. That person took the ch the choice to take that drug. Just calling it murder is very inefficient. It's silly. And you know why it is silly? Because you're going to get a lot of drug, drug pushers, those guys who are trying to make a dollar in the street. They're going to go to jail, and we are going to pay the fifty dollars or $60,000 it takes to keep them in jail because they sold fentanyl to a few people, as opposed to us trying to go to the crux of the problem. Why are people wanting fentanyl? Why are they buying fentanyl? You guys are always trying to tackle things on the supply side. It is idiotic. My, I don't use those words often, but it is completely idiotic. To go ahead and say, we'll just lock the person up who's selling the fentanyl and charge them with murder. Are you kidding me? They didn't murder anybody. Somebody chose to take fentanyl and put it into their bodies. That's not murder. 
That is trying to pass the buck of responsibility to someone else. Whatever happened to personal responsibility that Republicans like to talk about? Makes no sense whatsoever. Brisa, so Eric hopes so Lake Powell would, uh, could gain 35 feet as snow melts and makes it way to the tributaries. The problem is they are 170-something feet below full value. So that is only about 10 to 15% of what's needed. The right and billionaire bailout society, France protests are a great thing, environmental activist speaks. Yes, fentanyl bill, yes, in Texas. Silly, silly, silly. The most idiotic bill one could think about having. Michael Rodenza Egberto, most opiate addicts don't know they're taking fentanyl when they overdose. It is the biggest problem with the black market. Again, legalize the stuff and then we won't have the problem. Uh, let's see what else we have here that's, uh, that I need to. Okay, this is a long interview, so let me go ahead and get it started. And here we go. Stefania Tomaskovic, PhD, is serves on as the coalition director for the Coalition for Environment, Equity, and Resilience. She believes that a strong, resilient Texas is possible. One where every person can access safe, affordable housing, where every neighborhood has healthy air, water, and soil, and where our economy is strengthened by meaningful work opportunities that support healthy livelihoods without doing harm to each other or the environment. Prior to joining SEER, Stefania worked with public citizens. I actually worked with them as well. A national nonprofit group dedicated to representing the people's voice in the halls of power. Stefania has also worked as a chaplain and a geologist. Man, you have done everything. Welcome to Politics <laughs> on Right, Stefania. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic today. Well, look, we are ecstatic to have you here because we need folks of your caliber in informing uh, Houston and beyond. And the fact of the matter is we don't have enough people doing what you do. And when we have more people doing what you do with the exposure that should be given, we'll have a better America. Talk to me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I think that's one of the reasons why I'm here is because I want to create a better America. And I know people are hungry for a better America. Yes. Yes. And so I'm, I'm with the Coalition for Environment, Equity, and Resilience mm -hmm. called SEER. Right. And we formed after Hurricane Harvey. And during that time, Hurricane Harvey was just such a catastrophe yeah. for our region. I don't know anyone who doesn't know someone who was very Affected. harmed. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But it's not only the fact that Harvey touched so many people across the region. It's the fact that Harvey brought to the surface the disparities that are already were already existing in, in the Houston area, but also widened them. Wow. Yeah. Right. So, so people who were having a hard time already, there are still people who are recovering, mm -hmm. who haven't had their homes fixed. And and there have been studies showing, talking about concentration of wealth, right? Mm -hmm. Th that even people who've been, uh, who, who had flood insurance, that they, they were able to recover better. And, and actually, uh, certain communities were able to obtain more wealth mm -hmm. after Harvey than other communities, which have been just completely left behind. So that's one of the reasons why I do the work that I do, is because too many people are getting left behind and with climate disasters becoming more frequent, 
in the, the Houston area. Mm-hmm. It's not just Harvey. It's not just tropical storms and hurricanes. Uh, we've been battling a number of winter storms and, and really wild weather that mm-hmm. is not normally what, what we have faced here mm-hmm. in Houston. Those, those kinds of storms are really creating situations where people who are already struggling are struggling even more, even more, even more. So that's why I'm here. Well, you know, you, you did, a, I think, a, a piece with, uh, you brought a PDF here, and I found the PDF so very instructing because it act, you, you actually show how, it, well, you talk, tell us a little bit about environmental justice, because a lot of people just look at environment as, oh, rain's coming more than before and all of that. But what you did is you went ahead and broke that down. You actually showed that, uh, you know, it, it's not just an environmental crisis, but it's a people's crisis and, and it, it affects people differently. Not only the environment, but even things like that you showed in the document with the cancer alleys and all that kind of stuff. So why don't you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. Let me tell you a little bit about environmental justice. Because when we talk about environmental justice, it can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But when you look at the history of the environmental justice movement, it really started in the early 1980s. And this is not to say that environmental injustice was not a thing before then. Because, I mean, Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated while he was in Memphis fighting for the rights of sanitation workers, which is definitely an environmental justice issue. But in the early 1980s, in North Carolina, a rural black community found out that they were going to be the dumping grounds for PCB-laden sediment soil. And they fought back because they did not want to be a dumping ground. Right. Like, who, who would, right? right? Right, And that was really the birth of what we know now as the environmental justice community. Black and brown communities taking a stand against this dumping that has been happening over and over and over again across the country and in some places across, you know, across the world, really. And that, that movement... Even though the people in North Carolina and war North Carolina were not successful at fighting that, mm-hmm. it really spurred a, a movement that has worked to create justice for particularly black and brown communities, lower income communities uh, across the country that have been just enduring struggle after struggle, mm-hmm. including environmental pollution that harms people's health. I think that's something that you know, you think about all the corporations that make profit off of this while people who are already having difficulty, you know, just making, making ends meet are having to face cancer, having to face other health challenges that, um, you know, they don't have the resources for because they, you know, it's a systemic issue, you know, like in Texas, we could have, we could have Medicaid expansion and we don't. Right. So, so there's, there's a number of different issues. It's not just about the pollution in the environment. It's all these different factors coming together, these interrelated factors about healthcare, about education, uh, about even historic things like redlining. Mm-hmm. Like, why are certain communities located where they are? And why are they historically, um, uh, having 
dealt with this pollution issue for, for decades and decades, right? So there's, there's these historic factors for, for why, you know, certain communities have become dumping grounds. And then there's the, the just where things are right now, right? In that, that, um, a lot of communities are under-resourced, mm-hmm. have been disinvested, and the government, local, state, federal, all of them, all of them have often failed communities in, in getting things cleaned up, etc. You know, when I saw your, you know, uh, when Tori uh, came and he said, you know, we got to get you in here, and I went ahead and looked at your bio, I, the first thing I looked and when I saw all the different pieces and things, I said, ah, she gets it. Because you, this is not, it's not a monolithical manner in which you have to handle this problem. Because I live in Kingwood, right? Um, you were just talking about Harvey. And when we had Harvey, uh, Kingwood was taken care of right away. Hell, the, the mayor came to Kingwood with a whole bunch of folks screaming at him to move, uh, to move their garbage out faster than anywhere else. I mean, in a week's time, Kingwood was, uh, except for the homes that were flooded, and it was a whole bunch of them, but they, the cleanup went really quick. And later on, I had a friend that came from Atlanta to help folks, and he had a public kitchen going around, um, going around Houston. And I went into neighborhoods that I had never been before that simply seem to have been forgotten and you as well as I do know what those neighborhoods look like it were it was the Latino and the black neighborhoods that were in in Houston which is a very multicultural perfectly balanced city and then we had the folks many in Kingwood complaining about we're not you know they're not taking good care of what's going on in you know in, in certain areas and I was like have you been to the rest of Houston do you know how bad of problems. So I, it was great to see that you got it. You know, that some, that we have an organization that gets it. Yeah. Thank you for, for that affirmation. You know, it's really the way Houston is mm-hmm. right. People can forget about certain neighborhoods, mm-hmm. right? It's like there's highways that divide communities and, um, I remember when I first moved to Houston, I was given where the advice. Came, where do you come from? Um, I was coming from Dallas. Okay. Oh, <laughs> okay. We are, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. To <laughs> you're, look at Tori. Tori's shaking his head. <laughs> I'm, I'm just missing Everyone with you. in Dallas gave me a really hard time. Said, but are you coming to Houston? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but I'm glad to be here. You know, Houston is, it has its challenges, but it's also yeah. a really wonderful place, right? And, you know, I, th- I think though, for a lot of people, like when, when I moved to Houston, someone told me, Oh, don't live, don't live east of 45. Mm-hmm. It's like, what's, what's east of 45? Right. Right. There's, there's a lot of, um, black industry, black community, Latino community, exactly. all that kind of stuff, which means they're not, for some reason, they don't get the services that you get, even in a place like Montrose, in the, you know, come on. And, and uh, what's hurtful is that so many don't see it. And, and that's why I said, when we have groups like your group uh, that are out there, we need to get you on air. We need to make sure that you can tell, because you know what? Most people are good folk. I'm oh, sorry. Most yeah. people are nice, period, punto y final, you know? But if you don't know, you don't know. And that's, that's where right. uh, organization like yours come in. 
That, that's right. What's I the name of it again? C-E-E-R. What is it? C-E-E-R, the Coalition for Coalition. Environment, Equity, and Resilience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't remember all this. <laughs> that's why SEER is a lot easier to... Is that how you say it? SEER? SEER. SEER. Okay. SEER is a lot easier to say. Okay. Tell me more. Tell me more. Yeah. Um, you know, so... so there, people, people can mm-hmm. not realize that in their own city that there are people left behind to the extent right. that they are, right? I, I think most people um, who don't know, like it's not... In their, it's not in their uh, rearview mirror or, or in their windshield, you know, neither one. Yes. So tell yes. me, what, uh, how do you interface with community, your group? We interface with community in a few different ways. Um, we have right now we have um, essentially four different campaigns mm-hmm. that we're taking part in. One is um, in regards to flood equity, mm-hmm. right? So back in 2018, when voters in Harris County passed the flood bond, Sear was working with the county to ensure equity because a lot of times what happens is money that's available for improving flood infrastructure mm-hmm. goes to the wealthier communities, the, yes. the whiter communities, the communities that already have a very loud voice at the table mm-hmm. and are making those demands. So Sear stepped in because there was a need to ensure that other communities were not getting left behind in the process. So Sear worked with Harris County in the development of um, what was called the Harris Thrives Resolution. And this was a resolution that brought in equity into the equation and actually used uh, um, the Social Vulnerability Index Mm -hmm. to help um, decide on project um, prioritization. I want you to explain Social Vulnerability Index because what happens is I have callers before and not, not callers, but people in my chat, including right now. And by the way, welcome Bridge MCP. Welcome Peggy Lopez. Welcome Eric Hayes, Bruce Pollard, as well as Chris Meka. Uh, thank you for being here in the comments. I'll read your comments in a little bit, but thank you so kindly for being here online. Um, yeah, explain that because what happens is, I, uh, you know, a lot of folks are complaining like, well, how comes they change the formula in the way the money was dispersed? Somehow we're not getting our fair share. This particular county precinct got more than the other. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right, right, right. So it's it's a way of uh, the the prioritization framework is a way of addressing need, right, and and really putting worst first, mm-hmm. so that people who need support are getting the support that they need. You know, when you look at some of the ways that funding can often be allocated, they mm-hmm. use things like um, what's called benefit cost analysis, mm-hmm. where what they're doing is looking at a few different factors, but one of those factors is like property values. Oh God. Right. I, I was just going to talk about that. And I finished that because I had something to say there. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So they're looking at property values in terms of determining whether someone is worth protecting. And that is just really unfair in terms mm-hmm. of who it leaves behind. Um, so that that's how a lot of projects get approved in wealthier communities. And this way of using the social vulnerability index is really prioritizing people who, who have fewer resources to recover so that when the next Harvey strikes or any you know similar kind of flooding disaster, that they will already be in queue or, or, or maybe even have the projects completed so that they're not suffering the greatest impacts. Because 
like I said, people are still recovering mm-hmm. from Harvey. If you aren't aware of that, it's, it's true. Oh, and it's amazing yeah. how many don't really know. But Stephanie, when you brought up the property values, this is the part that got me crazy because I had friends that, you know, live in these big homes and they, you know, they got six inches of water or something. And there was some part of the law that allowed them to take huge tax breaks on the, uh, and, and also got a bigger funding for that house. And then I said, well, you know, somebody in Tinbach to Houston who has a $50,000 home, wooden home, and they got flooded. It's their home. It's their lodging. It's where they stay. Just like that person who lives in that $500,000 home. That's where they live. That's where they stay. You're saying that because, or the way a lot of these formulas work, because you live in this expensive house, the cost benefit analysis, like, oh, let's save these things because, it, you know, the, the house costs more. Costs more to whom? You know, I mean, they call homes a capital investment, right? You decided to invest in your capital that's worth a whole lot of money. Well, you take the risk just like everybody else. And, you know, a home is a home is a home, right? Yeah, right, right, right. No one's home should should have to go through that and, and, uh, people shouldn't have to fight so hard to, to get recovered. Yeah. And you know, another thing that can often happen too is the way that titles are passed down, Mm -hmm. um, in, in white communities, it's often very clear who is the title holder for Mm -hmm. a home where in, in particularly like the black community, it can be a lot more complicated to determine airship and who, who actually owns the home. Mm -hmm. And so in terms of like FEMA coming in and, um, you know, uh, providing funds, for mm-hmm. repairs, they need the homeowner to sign off on that. Right. And so there actually has to be work done to, to determine who, who, right. who, who actually is the title holder. And, and so those are things that either slow down or completely halt the process. And, and um, you know, there's just these systemic barriers that don't take into consideration how how things are passed along in different families, right? So there's there's these challenges that happen along the way that you know, are rooted in just kind of the, the it's history systemic. Of, it's the yeah. history of the country. Yes, mm-hmm. we've had redlining. Yes, we've had racism. Yes, we've had all these things. W- what is there not to understand that, again, like I said, it's great that we have the seers of the world being able to help navigate those kinds of things because most people just throw their hands up in the air and say, well, you know, we, there's nothing we can do. And they, they steadily fall behind and behind and behind. And societally, they can never, ever recover and become that, you know, what, what they possibly and should, could be. Right. And then throw a global pandemic on top oh, of that. Talk to me. A winter storm. Talk to me. Another winter storm. Yes. You know? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I can't tell you how many people I've heard about whose, whose pipes froze mm-hmm. and, you know, out of power for, for a week, right? For so now let me ask you this. We've been talking about, uh, we talk a lot about global warming and, and let's talk about how do you think first, it affects us locally because you, you talk a lot about helping people in Houston. How did, would that affect us locally? Yeah. You know, one of the challenges mm-hmm. of, um, I think the climate movement is it initially for, well, for a lot of people, for a lot of people, when they think about climate change, they think about ice sheets, they think about mm-hmm. polar bears, right? They're not thinking about Houston. Right. And, um, our climate justice organizer was out talking with community members about climate change one day. And she told me this story, this one woman she talked to said, climate change. I don't know anything about climate change, but what I know is that people in my community are dying. Oh, wait, who told you that? This was a community member in Northeast Houston. Really? Yes. Okay. Yes. And you know, for 
a lot of us, we're not necessarily thinking about climate change in Houston and, and the impacts, but there's these daily impacts that we face from it. We've had some of the hottest weather on record. Yeah. February, I think, was one of the hottest months yes. on record. And I am just really becoming aware that the first half of my life is significantly cooler than the second half. Mm -hmm. And that has big impact in Houston because heat stress is real. Heat stress is real. It impacts people's health. Not everyone can afford electricity to pay for air conditioning, mm -hmm. right? And when you have more and more days over 90 degrees, over 95, over 100 degrees, that's going to have a real impact on people's pocketbooks and on their health. And you know, the health thing is so real because even, even now my trees... Oh, by the way, I, I have a little funny thing here. You said you realized that the first half of your life uh, was cooler than the second half of your life. As you get older, my friend, you're going to realize that more and more and more. And I'm not talking temperature here. We were all cool when we were young and then we get older. That, that's all. That, I, I was trying to make, make a corny joke. Anyway, uh, but as it turns out... Um, you know, I've never had the kind of problems with pollen and all these things in the air in February, which means we have a longer seasons that we're going to have all these types of nasal problems and all of that that we're not used to. And that also means you spoke about cost, etc. That also means higher costs for medical care, higher costs for drugs, higher costs for just about everything. That's right. That's right. So... That is one of the ways that climate is impacting us locally is just these kind of daily stressors, allergies from pollen, heat, and these things take a toll on mm -hmm. our money, on our health. And, um, you know, I, I feel like that's a thing that people miss a lot when we talk about climate change. Of course, then there's the big things, right? Like the Harveys and the, the, the winter storms, this weird weather that, um, you know, the, the, hurricane systems in the Gulf forming really rapid storms, mm -hmm. really intensifying quickly. Like that makes it a lot harder to predict what's going to happen in the Gulf when, when hurricane season mm -hmm. is, is in full force. Right. So that makes it challenging. It's a lot easier to prepare for a storm, even if you have like a week's notice, but right. when something forms in the Gulf and, and becomes a tropical storm and in, in a day, like what was that a tropical storm never, in Melda in yeah, 2019? We never knew it was coming almost. I mean, we knew it was going to be a light thing, but it just kind of exploded, you yeah. know, but yeah. you know, we have, um, hello, Alistair Waters. How are you doing? Lee Grant. Welcome. All, all the crew is here. Uh, Bruce wants to know for you, mm -hmm. have the results of, of the Climate Ambassadors survey been published? I don't know if you know about that. or Yeah, I can tell a little bit about okay. the Climate Ambassadors. Okay. So, SEER has a Climate Ambassador program. We work with about 14 community leaders in Northeast Houston. Mm -hmm. And um, a while ago, I think it was 2020... It was before and during the early phases of the pandemic. Um, Sears organizers worked with people in, in Northeast Houston to develop this program. And then the ambassadors actually did a survey mm -hmm. of uh, community members to really help us figure out how we were going to approach these issues and mm -hmm. what issues we wanted to focus on. And so with that, what we found people really cared about was having health 
healthy, safe housing, Mm -hmm. right? And that has led us into developing um, not just policy solutions for weatherization for people's homes so that in, in hot conditions, but also in, in cold oh, conditions yeah. like, like what happened in 2021, uh, people can, can remain in their homes and stay, stay fairly comfortable. Fairly comfortable. Right. Exactly. Right. There's, there's ways to, to do that mm-hmm. through weatherization. And so we want to expand the policy so that it covers more people and people can get their homes. So let me see if I understand mm-hmm. you correctly. Are you saying you, your, the ambassadors come to you with the, 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 the solutions that they think for their particular communities. Is that correct? Yeah. So, so that was the purpose of mm-hmm. that questionnaire was for the ambassadors to work with their community and, and determine what, what were the solutions that we right. should focus on? And when it comes to the weatherization, do you all provide, how, how does that work? Do you all provide like contracting or help in finding contractors? You get subsidies from the, the federal government or how does it work? We don't do that kind of work. Mm-hmm. Um, Right now, there are there are programs. Uh, there's a program through Baker Ripley where people mm-hmm. can sign up and and participate. Uh, um, sometimes the wait list can be really long. You know, just just to put it out there. And so we are currently working with them and, and other partners, including the Houston Advanced Research Center, on a pilot program. And uh, our ambassadors and and. Um, uh, some of our ambassadors are going to be essentially working as community navigators to help people apply for the program and, and kind of case manage, right? Mm-hmm. So that people can uh, can have support going through the program so that it's not just a filling out a form and you know, not, not hearing back for right. a long time. And it, so it, it's a way to, to kind of maintain a relationship and, and answer questions and help people with the process. But the design of that is actually going to be done working with community through uh, different um, uh, engagement opportunities like mm-hmm. focus groups and things like that. So we're actually going to be co-designing this process. So you go into different neighborhoods and try to hold town halls and that sort of thing? Or? I'm not sure exactly what it's going to look like, mm-hmm. to be honest. We're, we're just in that You're phase of, of yeah. exactly, exactly. But, but we do want it to be co-designed with, with our community members. That is great. Um, uh, Eric, you said that I wasn't truthful on something. Uh, please give us a call. 713-526-5738. You know, if you think that I am not truthful, I would want to make sure that I am corrected for my audience because again, we don't want politics. Don't write ain't ain't ABC, CBS, NBC, MSNBCs, and those that will mislead you. So, if you think I said something incorrectly, please give us a call at seven one three five two six five seven three eight. Bruce says, "Did this survey support the new solar farm being constructed to help provide energy when needed?" So, the solar farm that's being constructed right now is in the Sunnyside community, and that that is not something Sear has been involved with, mm-hmm. but. Um, I know there's been a lot of conversations in Sunnyside about that project. So we haven't been specifically involved in that. And, and the survey didn't cover that mm-hmm. part of um, Houston. We, we've been focusing in Northeast Houston. Yeah. One of our, our listeners also, our, yeah, listeners also want to tell you, Hey, I'm in Myrtle Beach. Wait, let's see what she says. It better to tell her, uh, Myrtle Beach residents shocked by mass of pollen. So maybe if, if people all over the country, we, we get callers from all over the country. So I mean, maybe if all the, um, all these places throughout the country start to see this, maybe, maybe they'll start voting in people that will really take climate change and all this stuff, uh, seriously. I have people, some in the chat that's like, uh, gas is more efficient than solar. Get right. Just give me my gas. And it's like, 
short-sightedness. You know, what, how do you talk to somebody like that? What would you tell them? I, I know what I say. What would you tell them? So I like to start with what I know and mm-hmm. what, what the facts are. Mm-hmm. And so there's, I just think back to 2021 and how natural gas failed the state of Texas. Oh, you know, I'm, I mean, you're so smart. I'm so glad you brought that up because it's funny because they had to lie immediately when the failure started. They said the turbines went down, the cold weather got them, and it turned out that it was frozen gas uh, equipment that caused our crash, our right. electric grid crash. Yeah, yeah. And when you look at the data, renewables actually... Saved us. Saved us. Yes. And, and uh, overperformed relative to what, what yes. they thought the renewables would do. So, so right. It, there was a lot of misinformation that was coming out from the... the from the government. From, from, the government. Uh, from Austin, they were lying. And what's interesting is that even as they lie... Uh, we are one of the states that have the largest wind farms out there. We are one of the states that are doing a lot, very a lot of work in renewables. And to have a government after you have the, not only the private sector but some of the federal sector doing so much in 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 green energy, and to have our local or state government lie to the people. What do you, I know you're. Pro, do you talk? I know you don't talk political so much, but I mean, um, it's it's shameful that that actually occurs, don't you think? I'm just talking about not political, just a truthful thing. I agree. It's shameful that that something like that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, that people were not told the truth about what happened, and that in Austin there's a continual push for fossil fuels that are exacerbating the problems that we're having here. And you know what is so sad about that? Um, and as much as we are energy producing state and that we have a lot of oil wells and so forth, th- the funny thing about it is if we were just to double up on renewables, the cost back for renewables in the long run is so much greater because we don't have to dig deep holes. We don't have to pressurize holes to put waste in all of them. We don't have to frack. We don't have to do all those things if we just invested where you get the biggest bang for the buck. Right. And I think the costs have really come down. Mm-hmm. So this is a great time to be investing in renewable energy. You know, I tell folks, you know, I look, let's, let's fly over Houston, right? I'm looking at a vast power station unused. Every single roof mm-hmm. is a power station unused. And that, you know, um, I, I tried to get uh, some cells on my home once and realized that the economic system under which puts these cells out is pretty for all practical purposes is fraudulent. They come out and they tell you, uh, I know what, by the way, I know what the cell costs. I know all of that. And it's, I, I got two different quotes, same amount of stuff with a difference in price of over $30,000. Wow. Wow. Does that tell you who, you know, it's not, I mean, it's like they want to capitalize on everything as opposed to saying, Good energy. This is one of the places where I think we need to have uh, the government step in and say we are going to just throw cells on every roof, you know, everybody's roof. We increase taxes here. I mean, just think about what that would look like, Mm -hmm. you know. One of the things I'm excited about right now Mm -hmm. is, um, you know, last year, uh, federal government passed the Inflation Reduction Act. Yes. And there's, you know, there's not, it's it's not perfect in a lot of ways. It, It 
could invest a lot more money into addressing climate change. And there's some really great opportunities there too, including the greenhouse gas mm-hmm. emissions reductions uh, programs that right. their EPA is currently developing. So I, I would love to see what comes out of it and what, what that looks like and how that might impact distributed solar or community microgrids or, or other oh, ways. Well, to- I love that concept <laughs> of the, the, the community, the microgrids and this, mm-hmm. you know, distributed solar panels, you know, I mean, solar, you know what I'm talking about now in your, in your, um, PDF that I saw there, you were talking about the parts of Houston where things are really, it, it kind of shows you that if you look at the demographics of certain areas that you actually see, there are certain kind of industries there. There are certain kind of illnesses there. There's tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a group here in Houston called the One Breath Partnership mm-hmm. that did a really good report called the Houston Arrow. I recommend people go and check that out because one of the things that um, that report did is it really highlighted the varying inequities across Houston mm-hmm. in a geographic way. So you can look at a map and see, okay, in this map. This area has, you know, the most education. These areas have the least amount of education. Mm-hmm. You can go through for all these different um, parameters, parameters right. exactly. And you see that the map pretty much stays the same, mm-hmm. right? And one of the things I was really shocked to learn several years ago was that in Harris County, there is a 23-year difference in life expectancy depending on what zip code you live in. You have got to be kidding me. I am not kidding you. 23 years. Really? Yes. So your zip code has a huge influence on your health in Harris County. And I don't believe that anyone should have to live with a reduced lifespan because Because of of where they live. live. And some people, they have no choice. Exactly. Uh, you know, you know, and people, people get upset when you, you, you talk about having to mitigate these things, right? Mm-hmm. Why are you giving them that or is it, well, I mean, you know, how did they get there in the first place? Yeah. You know, how did they get there in the first place? I mean, um, a lot of people get upset when I speak certain way about what corporations do and how the result in the, how government results in getting them to do. But if we take a look at what you're saying here, you know, we have the concentration of certain types of plants in certain areas. We have the concentration of uh, certain types of medical uh, things in certain areas. But here's a real kicker, right? I remember when I had my kid and I decided, you know, I was living in, uh, in, in the Aleph area, et cetera, et cetera. And when it was time for my daughter to start school, I went ahead and did a map as well. And I mapped out where all the best schools were. And at that time, uh, it was Katie and Kingwood. Those were the two, uh, two, and that's where we bought a house, right? Mm -hmm. And then you realize afterwards that, um, the way our system works, right? It's like the, the, because the prices of homes in certain areas are more expensive, those schools get a bigger piece of the pie. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a, it's called public education, right? When you drive on a road in, in, in whatever part of Houston, right? You didn't figure out if your taxes paid for that piece of the road or the other piece of the road. But when it comes to education, if you live in a good zip code, and, it's com- and this is comparable to compare compared to what you just said about life expectancy. Mm-hmm. When you live in a good uh, a good zip code, 
you know you're going to have a good school. You live in another zip code, you know you're going to have a school that has leaks and all these things. And it's all the same public education. Right, right, right. And not every school even has school nurses. Right. Right, right. And uh, there's a number of schools that are under-resourced that I believe deserve to have education, you know, access, all of that is a part right? of your just the justice, yes. the, the even environmental justice, if you exactly. want to be, uh, and you, you had four pieces to that environmental justice that I wrote down. I think it was race. It was, uh, there was something. Yeah. So, so, you know, um, the way that I see environmental justice is, is this recognition between everything being connected, these issues that we're talking about, right. education, healthcare, uh, they're not, Okay. Unrelated. They're, these I are think, connected issues. And I think people have to understand what that specifically, a lot of folks want to take these things in chunks, mm -hmm. but as you pointed out, they are all interrelated. They don't stand alone or apart. Yes, that's right. That's right. It's um, people who lack affordable housing options mm -hmm. will often find themselves in situations where they have to live next to a plant right. because that's, that's the house that's available to them right. or, you know, or because of where they live, plants have come in right. because they can know, do it there, but they couldn't do it. Not in my backyard. What is it? Nimby, right. Nimby, 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 not in my backyard. Not in my backyard. You know, right. I hear a lot of people say, well, could they, could they build this concrete batch plant in river Oaks? Thank you. Right. No. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and people look at it as, well, you know, there's, there's that as if that doesn't exist and, and people want you to stay quiet about it. Or if you raise hell about it, they want to call you a radical or the big S and all these kind of things. And we're saying, no, we just want to have an equitable society. I don't think it's, we're not asking for everybody to be equal uh, if they don't work towards uh, where they want to go, but we want an equitable society. Everybody have equal access to success or equal access to failure, right? I believe everyone should have access to clean air, clean water, and opportunities, right? So, yes. Yes, I, I think that's... Mm -hmm. That's... You know, like that... that Everyone should just... It should be a baseline, right, for people to have the access to those things. I want to show you the mentality of some, uh, some right? Because... Mm -hmm. Whenever you point out that, you know, whenever you, you pointed out this 23 year difference in zip code and the first thing, you know, like this is not a bad guy who said it, but the first thing that, that this guy came up with was, he's a good guy. I know him. And he says, I wonder how much of the reduced lifespan as to the, uh, it's due to crime and homicide. Hmm. You know, and, uh, you know, and, and whether that's, I, I imagine that, a, let, let me answer that first and then I'm going to ask you to come in. Look, part of that is going to be crime and homicide because we know that crime and homicide is more prevalent uh, based on socioeconomics, irrespective of race, based on socioeconomics, there's a higher degree of homicide and all these sort of things. So that's one issue. But then you have to ask the genesis of the homicides and the genesis of why those things occur. And it goes right back into what Stefania says. All these externalities, lower education, and you can take it up from there, my dear. Sure. You know, um, when I worked as a champ chaplain, I mm -hmm. worked with cancer patients mm -hmm. and I saw people of all, all ages, all races, all faiths, you know, mm -hmm. and, and while this is not any 
really comprehensive data analysis, there were some things that I've really picked up in terms of, you know, un, from people's stories about their life experiences, mm-hmm. about um, what things in their environment had impacted them, you know, whether they were living across from a refinery right. or, or some other kind of industrial facility. And so that definitely has shaped my perspective mm-hmm. on uh, how I see these, these kinds of differences in lifespan. Mm-hmm. I am not an expert on homicide or crime rates. Mm-hmm. I think you're right in that you know, there, there are, everything is connected, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like I was just saying, these these things are not separate. And what needs to happen is investment in communities where there may be higher crime rates, where there may be higher rates of homicide and not just investing in police, but really investing in a holistic way to invest in, in, in communities well-being to support them mm-hmm. to to help with education ensuring ensuring clean water mm-hmm. ensuring there's no lead in the schools because right? that also attributes to criminality because of lead and, and what it does to the mind right right these environmental factors mm-hmm. impact the body they impact the brain it's not isolated right. these these things all come together so so i would advocate for just greater investment in, in communities. If we, if we for a change, if we for a change decided to do those kinds of investments, and I tell you what I think would bring that. I have a phrase on my program says, whenever we unite the barrios, the ghettos, and Appalachia, then we will get, we will win. We'll get the results that we've got. And this is what I mean by that. And it's a stereotype, it's a stereotype the way I say it, but the idea is, what Houstonians and many Americans don't see is they don't see the life, what, uh, what a lot of white people look like in Appalachia, which doesn't look any different than black folks in the ghettos and, 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 and others in the ghettos, etc., that we are used to seeing here in, in, in these cities. My daughter, uh, while she was at um, studying uh, at med school, she uh, took this job one summer and she went through Appalachia and she called, I remember when she called me, shocked. She said, I'd never seen people living in these conditions. She was doing a, her doctor thing inside of uh, uh, parts of Ohio, parts of uh, PA, etc. And then I said to her, you know, uh, I, I, that is what, whenever people see degeneracy or whenever people see poverty or whenever we see all of that on TV, it looks like me, right? It looks like my Latino brothers and sisters, right? But it doesn't look like my white brothers and sisters. And why is all of it? it, it you, you wonder what is the mechanism that prevents that? And that is if those three folks realize their commonality and what needs to get done, things that you are trying to put out there. Imagine the changes that would occur because suddenly those people that think it's just the others that live that way would say that can also happen to me. Your thoughts? Yeah. I think there is way more that unites us than divides us. Exactly. And we should be working together. Absolutely. Dr. Stefania Tomaskovic, thank you so kindly. She's the director of Coalition for Environment, Equity and Resilience. Thank you so kindly for having been here with us on Politics Done Right. Such a pleasure. And please remember, this is your place. Anytime you have something to say, just come on out, okay? 
we spend a lot of time. All right, folks, I hope you enjoyed that. And, and yes, uh, Melanie Keelan, I think I already cleaned it up. Uh, the lead on YouTube, and I think I did it on Facebook as well. I wish it, you guys can check to make sure that I did, in fact, do that. Some peeps are showing their male whiteness, is what Bridge MCP said. Let me tell you something, uh, Bridge. Uh, you know, all of us that have lived through a whole lot of the the unfairness in our society, and, the, the, you know, we understand how things got the way they are. Uh, the reason why folks don't want to teach, uh, they don't want to teach critical thinking and all these things, is that when they find out the unfairness of what has occurred in this country, and I tell you what, yes, the most unfairness occurred, if we really want to be technical about it, to the indigenous people as everything that we usurped, everything that they um that they own, that they, well, they didn't believe in land ownership. They believed in stewardship of the land. We believe in taking for the king and the queen, really taking for the plutocracy and pilfering it. You know, I have a, a certain uh, person at the radio station, and this is a quick little story that shocked me. This guy's a progressive. And we were talking about oil, and he said, ah, they have to drill in the, the, the oil belongs to those corporations anyway. And, you know, so, um, if they don't drill it, the other people would drill. And I'm like, um, okay, let's not get into the technical stuff of drilling. But what would make you say that this oil belongs to the corporations who bought the rights from the government? Why would you say that? And if that is officially the case, why would you accept that? It is so amazing. But anyway, I like what I'm seeing in France. And I, you know, uh, Macron took the... You know, he wants to consider himself a, a progressive or a good guy, but he took the nuclear option and he decided that he's going to force retirement on the French people from 6 to 2 to 6 to 4, and it's just going to go through. What, what, what ought to happen if our people got together, the masses got together, is for there to be a no vote of confidence in France so that Macron's government would topple and we can get a real government in uh, France that m ensures these people get uh, can retire at the age that was promised and at the same time sock it to the wealthy who these people, who's been building their wealth on the backs of these people. The other subject, so I'm just going to touch on that a little bit. The other thing I want to touch on, I have the article will be in, in the blog, but it's on the screen right now. The other article that I want you guys to consider looking at is what will it take to end the billionaire bailout society we live in? And what it will take is the same thing I'm telling the folks on, in France. We have, to act, we have to acknowledge your worth. You know, everybody said, well, Biden had to do it with the bailout. And I agree. Because they have us by the pelotas, I think Biden had to do the bailout. But with, but I think the next step is what we didn't do in 2008. I want to read you something real quick. It says, in case we need proof, the, bail, the Silicon Valley SVB, that's not, I, I, want, I, I can't find where, what I want to read, but I'm going to tell you what it says. Here's what it says. If the government were to ensure all deposits, in other words, not limited to 250 by definition, 
then it will give the bankers the incentive to go and gamble your money away with high-risk bets. And if they win, they're filthy rich. And if they lose, the government takes up the slack. So I want you guys to digest that. Digest that. They're saying, if the government were to insure, so what the government does is only insures a part of it, so these bankers take less risk. Okay? Because, you know, people feel safe. What you're still saying, because even when the bankers are, the, the, the government only insures a part of it, in this case, $250,000, because of the fear of what happens if we allow all those people with billions of dollars who went ahead and throw their monies in these institutions to fail, that it would bring down the entire economy. I want to ask all of you something. Doesn't that really tell you that where our money supply is matters? That straight up banking does not belong in the private sector. If you have, think about this, talk about moral hazard. If you have to say to protect your economy, you have to act like a nationalized banking system when they make a mistake. But when they're not making mistakes, when they're winning their bets, they keep all the profits. But even though nominally we say we're insuring up to $250,000, but because we're scared of all the crap that these supposedly titans of finance have done, we're going to insure it anyway and give make everybody whole Anyway, it's already nationalized banking, but it's only nationalized banking when we have to pay up. In other words, when they lose money, that is when we pay up. When they're winning money, they keep it all. Do you guys see how messed up the system is? Think about it. I really want you guys to think about this. We don't have any time now. We're, we're done. But I want you guys to think about how they have us snowed. Oh, we can't nationalize the bank. That's a bad thing. The banks are nationalized on the downside always. Thank, thank you very much, Rudden, for being here. The banks are already nationalized only though when they're losing money. But when they're not losing money, they're not. Um, Egberto might not uh, uh, not all of the show tomorrow. St. Pat's dinner out. You girl, you better go have some fun. Anyway, folks, I need to get out of here. My name is Egberto Willis. This is Politics and Right. And you guys know how I end this baby. I am what? What am I? Out! We spend a lot of time deconstructing the news, trying to trying to parse it into a form that everybody can understand. We try to find those little nitpicks where uh, it goes, it flies above the fray, etc. If you really like these videos that we do, I want to ask a big favor. Please go ahead, number one, subscribe to our channel, and number two, please join if you can. Thank you so kindly for watching. Keep watching. Please remember to share. We must populate the entire internet with our progressive message, a message that we know is what most Americans say that they want. So help us please join.